Okay, so, Mr. Yang, it has to be official. It's been a minute. We've talked um, about a whole range of things, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you have joined us, you know, so I want to more officially welcome you, June Yang, to our journey of voices, uh, the conversation, you know, really roadmapping what your journey's been, uh, where you are, what it's looked like, and how you've persisted through those things, uh, so that way we can zoom out and try to help everybody else along their journey you know, by leveraging some of those insights and lived experience. So um, I want to actually pass it over to you um, just so you can give us a little bit of the magic, a little bit of the intro about yourself and, and who you are. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Andreas, for having me. I know that uh, a little bit of background story for people who are watching this. Uh, the context is Andreas was the star of the school we met in high school, and uh, he came in uh our sophomore year right and i was basically you know i was a bit of a nerd but i was I, I i thought that i i had some some sports skills um and so out of all places we met uh also out on the football field playing american football and i was the was i the fourth or fifth string i forget something something along four and five and i think uh andreas was definitely the uh, star of the football team and I always wonder damn how does this guy have so much panache and just I the speed and the strength was one thing but I think uh, as much as off the field uh, and on the field he was just both a charismatic character and I always wondered how can I be better friends with this guy and it's kind of crazy it only took 10 years for for us to be sitting here and for you to come to me and say hey I kind of want to talk to you so I think um if if I had a time machine to go back to a uh, fifteen year old me or sixteen year old me and say, "Hey, uh, you're," he's gonna actually want to talk to you at some point. I think that's gonna be that's gonna be something that makes my day in the past. So, uh, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I guess I can start off by talking a little bit about myself and my background. Um, as Andreas mentioned, my name is June, and I am from Seoul, South Korea. I was born and raised there. Uh, I came to boarding school in the United States for high school and then went to college and now I'm uh, based off of Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is about uh, an hour outside of Boston. Um, I currently work as a quantitative developer um, at AJO, which is an investment management firm that's based out of Philly. Uh, we also have an office in Boston and I'm also the co-founder and president of Raising On Now, which is a nonprofit. Uh, that works sort of as a safety net for children in rural communities. Uh, in particular, we run an orphanage, uh, among other projects, uh, in rural Uganda. So that's sort of a little bit of an intro about me. And I'm sure as you ask these questions, I'll have more to talk about. Oh, my goodness. I don't even, I don't even know how to follow this guy up. Oh, man. Um, no, I think, you know, you're giving us a little bit of glimpse into the magic and you're skirting over it and downplaying it. I mean, you know, you absolutely did your thing in high school and before there, that's how you got into Phillips Exeter. Um, you know, and, and of course, you know, even after that journey, because you have to be resilient to go through and, and, and I think from a mental health perspective, you know, to stay grounded you know, <laughs> through that experience, um, you know, the more you kind of look and think about you know, what that whole process was. But I mean, you know, even even to, to hit pause before we go in, because I, I really want to highlight all of the richness um, and, and the insights that you really have. Um, 
you know, let's, let's, let's take it back to Seoul, you know, let's take it back to Korea and, and, and that environment kind of growing up. So, you know, the people, the places, uh, I've had the privilege to go and, and be in Jeju and Daegu and Seoul, um, but it was a nice. while ago. So why don't you give all of our viewers and everybody else uh, a little bit of insight for you, especially what was like? Yeah, I mean, Seoul, so Seoul versus the rest of Korea is kind of like, not exactly like, but similar to thinking about New York City versus the rest of the United States. You can say that it's, you know, the, the crown jewel, if you will, that's the most populated city in the country. There's about 10 million people who live in Seoul proper and about another 15 million uh, within the satellite cities. Uh, and considering that South Korea's population is about 55 million, you're looking at about half the, po half the population living in, say, in the New York City equivalent of the United States, it would be in the boroughs and maybe, you know, the tri-state area. So that's a lot of concentration. Um, so what, is it, what does it mean to grow up in a place like that? Well, one, for one thing, there's a lot of energy and uh, sort of a really, really fast pace of exchange of ideas. And I think you can sort of notice that in the administrations, how quickly the policies are changing. Uh, you can also notice that in the forms, in the different forms of how democracy is represented, it, uh, both in sort of the government, uh, as well as uh, within say the classroom, uh, because you would see how these, depending on the educational curriculum, depending on the culture and how dynamically it's shifting, as a child growing up, I really did notice that Yes, it was the same country, but I was noticing uh, very broad uh, strokes of change throughout uh, my elementary and middle school life in Korea. And finally, I think this is a more nuanced point um, and goes back to sort of one of my biggest passions personally in sort of all fields is the idea of language and how language reflects culture, it, it reflects our identity. And Korean as a language, is one of the fastest sort of evolving and developing languages. Um, just to give you a little bit of a, a background story here, Korea is a very old country. Um, of course, we know Korea as being the, you know, the only divided country today after um, the huge Korean War and what people call the proxy war between USSR and, and the United States. Uh, there's a lot of issues there, but even before then, it's a country with thousands of years of history and yet the Korean language, uh, even though it was spoken, the written form was only developed um, in the 15th century. And so here is a language that really developed quite recently considering the length of the history of the country. And because it was so de developed so recently and by what, what I would argue, one of the first R&D labs uh, the country has ever had because King Sejong hired a bunch of researchers and scientists and said, hey guys, you guys are gonna be holed up here and you guys are gonna come up with a language that everyone can speak because illiteracy is a huge problem because we're all using Chinese characters to represent things that really doesn't match up with what we're speaking. So what that meant was a lot of innovation and creativity and to be fair, a pretty recent construction of a language was uh, uh, put forth uh, in the 15th century. And so what we have today is a very flexible language, one that is very, uh, uh, able to sort of organically change and be shortened 
and that has been one of the core things of, I think, Korean culture that for me, having come to a foreign country and I guess as a first generation immigrant here, allowed me to be a lot more adaptable to not just the language, but frameworks uh, and, and thinking as well as people. So I would attribute a lot of my flexibility and adaptability to um, both Koreans, uh, the Korean language, as well as the culture um, that sort of shaped me. And I, and I appreciate um, how you deconstructed that because it's, it's, I mean, just even looking at the language element, absolutely. Um, you know, how pervasive it can be in terms of really um, enabling people to have agency or, or collaborate or mobilize or do any and everything, right? I mean, and, you know, that's why, you know, when you look at in other places, right, the context of people not allowing persons who were enslaved to read or have access to um, outside knowledge. And so um, communities and cultures grow. And as you said, being in a position where by very nature, if there's innovation embedded in the language continuing uh, and growing and transforming and then the factors of now we're in the digital age. So how is that uh, increasing as, as people kind of spread out, but also have to stay connected? Um, you know, so, you know, as you're speaking to some of these things, obviously you're passionate about, about a great deal of things. Um, but, you know, where did some of these passions, and then I want to hear about, you know, what are a few things that you would say you're passionate about are, um, but then even, you know, whether it's your upbringing or, or this community, kind of the sense that you're speaking of, um, where have some of these passions been rooted? Yeah, I mean, I would have to say that there's a large part of it that I attribute to my parents. Uh, we used to travel a lot as a family and we started our lives and actually when I was about two years old, that's when I first came to the United States for about a year and a half when my parents were doing their um, masters. So when they were, you know, they already had their undergraduate degrees in Korea and uh, my father um, was doing his LLM. So after he received his uh, JD in Korea, there is an LLM program that allows them to become international um, attorneys. And so he was doing that. My mother was also attending um, management school in the United States. And so when I was about two, three years old, that was the first exposure that I had to a completely different culture. And I went to Cranston, Rhode Island of all places. So if for those of you who don't know where Cranston, Rhode Island is, it's, you know, pretty close to Providence. I mean, Rhode Island is the smallest state in the country, so it's not too far, uh, but it's also, at least when I was there, it was a silver town. So it was a lot of retirees who were living there. We were the only Asians in like a hundred mile radius. And I went to Budlong Preschool and Budlong Preschool, which I recently had a 20 year reunion, again, a pretty wild concept to have a preschool reunion, but they all remembered me because I was the only Asian kid back then in 1997. And so they, they were saying, oh my God, like we haven't seen you in a while. And they all like sang the kind of teasing songs that I used to sing that was very Korean, like, you know, uh, teasing song. And they, they had a lot of memory in that. But I also remembered so much of my early three to four year old childhood then uh, because it was such a huge culture shock. I didn't speak a word of the language. I was thrown into an environment where nobody looked like me. Um, 
But at the same time, it was within the small community of a really homogenous community, in fact, that they were able to love me and accept me and, and let me grow. And I think that even when I went back to Korea, um, between the ages of, say, five and 12, I don't think any sort of single moment or series of memories really stand out as much as my year and a half period of being here uh, when I was in preschool and kindergarten. So that's that's one thing that really, I think, forms my ability to be open and to be, say, more of a, a to be more susceptible to having not just one, but multiple identities uh, and multiple frameworks uh, to work with. So I would I would start the clock there. And then, of course, there's high school and college where I was sort of being more and more exposed to a variety of approaches. I think one of the one of the things about Korea in particular is because it's a very uh, resource scarce country. I mean, it's 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 such a small country in terms of size. Um, and yet there are so many people living there. So what's the greatest asset of Korea, especially South Korea? It's human resources, it's education. And that's why for me, I mean, one of the reasons why I sort of dove into the nonprofit scene, of course, is because I'm thinking about what is necessary for a community to build itself out of situations. And it really came to the understanding of how integral the role of education, the access to education, the ability to make education fun. Uh, again, who are we educating? If it's going to be children, they need to have fun. And what I noticed was that there was a huge amount of emphasis in education in Korea, but not much flexibility in allowing for kids to uh, approach it in different ways. I found a lot more of that here uh, in the United States. And I think moving forward, that has sort of built more of a passion for how can we really frame uh, learning and education in general to be more uh, something that kids would want to enjoy and want to be a part of? So that's that's part of the part of the journey of how my passion for um, language and 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 understanding different frameworks of thinking uh, bled into education. Oh, listen again, I, I appreciate. The reality, you know, and then the contrast of you kind of digging, you know, into into I think what I would say, you know, the intersections of those things, you know, where, where culture and tradition, um, but then also innovation are, are constantly at, you know, this this crossroads. Um, and, and especially now with COVID and other, you know, all of the spaces, you know, I think especially education, you know, health and care and um, you know, justice, all of these things where it's human capital and human potential now um, are being challenged to redesign and pivot um, because they haven't necessarily been designed from a human-centered lens or, or, or from kind of the client-centered approach, um, which is very interesting. And, and obviously, as tech is coming into play, um, right. I, I would say maybe I'm a little biased because, of course, you know, we do work in space, but I think it, it's so critical that, um, you know, more and more of these conversations are had because especially if you do not have, and again, I think that's something that I very much so appreciate and I know that it adds to the stress and, and the tensions, um, but that Korea as a nation is 
as again as as an outsider and as someone who's you know my uncle has lived there for dang like 15 years or something like that wow um but you know being a a, a culture and a, and a nation that's really around like mobilizing um and in, and enabling you know not just for i would say like you know the combination of having you know the reserves and also of really promoting not that i would say english is the best language but you know promoting the sense of needing to have multiple ways to communicate uh and being able to you know infrastructure the means for people to be committed and and and, and you know have priorities that are set in a different way and it's needed so much because when we're talking about you know and contrasting that to maybe western nations where there's not that uniform social cohesion or traditional or cultural cohesion um and a lot of those things actually kind of like we were saying earlier whether it's with politics or around these these issues they're very divided you know so how can you mobilize human capital when you can't agree on what positive education looks like or what the right type of health and care looks like so you're still trying to kind of spend time circling the issue before you dive in rather than you know nations that are able to commit and mobilize around these things because it's a need um yeah. and that's something that i think is is so important especially now in the digital era and now now with covid continuing um you know and and uh, to be fair it's really i mean one of the it's i think it's one of those things where how the question of how do you mobilize a people how do you mobilize a group of people whether it is for an ideology or for the furtherance of their individual benefit how how do you mobilize a group of people that question you know is a billion dollar question quite frankly but it's it's also it has a lot to do with the history of that group of person so if you take for example south korea um we have a history of colonization we were colonized by japan for 36 years and that is something that is very much present in our identity um we also have a very homogenous group of people which is very unlike say the united states where you have all kinds of um different nationalities and ethnicities being represented and it's because of these differences that you would see um different feasibilities and approaches for example let's 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 make this super germane covid for example South Korea has about a sixth of the population of that of the United States and yet the total number of deaths in the country I have to check now but I think the last I checked which was last month was still under 500 500 that is orders of magnitude different and if you think about the fact that about half the country's population lives in a super dense Manhattan like city that's that's an astounding number and yes we were one of the first countries that were targeted or that were affected by it because of the proximity to China but really yes we learned from MERS and from SARS but a lot of the benefit really goes back to believing in science and also making sure that there is some form of contact tracing now contact tracing of course is oftentimes viewed as being orthogonal to privacy and you're right like it would never fly for in or i don't think it would ever fly really in the united states for example to have uh our phones basically we download an app for example if you go to korea regardless of whether you test positive or negative you self quarantine for 2 weeks and during that time you have to download an app and if you leave your compound if you leave your house 
someone from your local city district will call you and say, hey, sir or madam, uh, it seems like you've gone beyond your premise. Like, is everything okay? Um, and that's the degree of contact tracing that sort of helps with containing numbers. Is that feasible for other countries? Not really. This is also the same country that uh, during the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 1998, literally because the country, South Korea, had about 300 billion uh, in foreign exchange debt, you see an entire country mobilize to literally, there was a thing called the gold collection campaign. Citizens of the country just came out and donated their own gold to the country, about 220 tons of it, without any reward. They just said, you know what, here's my gold. The country needs to pay back its debt uh, to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Here's my goal. Take it. That's not something that's easy, but I wouldn't say that it's something that is necessarily because Koreans are good uh, at its uh, at their core per se, but because there's a shared history, there's a shared idea of you know what when things look really really bad, um, such as and we don't have to go that far back in history to remember what it really means to be have our livelihoods taken away from us, when, when things get really bad, we have to come together. And that's the kind of mobilization that I think, whether it's in the digital age or not, uh, we need to think about how we can, how we can engender that um, to happen. I completely agree. Uh, and, and, you know, especially, you know, where this whole era I really think is, is really based on, I mean, value you know, value in the exchange in it, uh, you know, the, the adjustment in everybody's priorities and, you know, how are we going to come together? When are we going to come together with who and why? Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, how our perception of the value in each of these relationships or exchanges has shifted. Uh, and, you know, exactly as you're saying, the collaboration or the collaborative element is so critical to success in this space for any nation, for any community, for uh, any person. And, and so, you know, as you're speaking about this, you know, this tension of a cultural uh, trauma of a, you know, identity trauma, um, you know, of, of kind of the, the shared consciousness and the trauma of the, you know, Korean persons, persons of Korean descent, you know, and, and not that it's the same, but, you know, that is the unity, you know, when you look at, you know, the trauma in, in the Jewish community or in the, the Afro-diaspora community or other of these things. But the reality, as you're saying, is you still have to be able to mobilize. And whether that's economically, whether that's politically, whether that's um, around food and sustainability uh, or education, that is a reality. Um, because these are these stressors in the system, whether it's COVID uh, or as you said, an external factor that is, you know, it's just, just economic. We owe a lot of money in it and it's, and it's due or, or, you know, there's an imbalance in this. We have to offset it with this. Um, mm -hmm. That stance is, is, is critical. So when you tie that to, uh, you know, I guess how all of that wider trauma or, or lived experience and as that kind of comes to yourself, you know, along your journey, you've definitely been challenged in, in, in different uh, capacities. You've had setbacks or, or points where you needed to pivot. Um, so I would love if you could give, you know, give us like one or two, um, but, you know, speaking to, I guess, you know, really what was that experience like? 
you know, the, this, this situation happened and then how were you able to uh, propel yourself through it? Yeah. Um, I guess I, I, in order to answer this question, I have to go a little bit deeper into some of the stuff that I already talked about. So when people generally think about what does it mean to be bicultural or what does it mean to embody multiple uh, cultures in one body, what does that mean? And I think a lot of people think it's pretty cool. I mean, people, people are impressed when somebody shows three, four passports and it's like, oh my God, this citizen of the world kind of thing. And I, I also find it really fun and cool to be a polyglot, for example. I think I, I genuinely believe that the more languages you speak, the less likely or the less possible it comes for someone to be a bigot. Uh, just because you can't possibly have a myopic or parochial mindset when you speak multiple languages that, you know, in and of themselves embody so much culture, uh, religious aspects, uh, stories uh, within the language. And if you can speak many of them, you, you cannot uh, possibly think that there is only one possible way of viewing things. And I think um, for me, that sort of was at the basis of how I wanted to um, accept more things and challenges in my life. Um, but there are also things that really make it a bit more challenging uh, in, in very real terms from a day-to-day -day perspective. So the more you feel like you are becoming, for example, in my, in my case, I lived right about half my life, about 13 years of my life in Korea and another 13 in the United States. What that means to me personally uh, is that it took me a while, but I feel like when I am speaking in English with, uh, say, English-speaking people, I embody 100% a full identity uh, of being more American. When I speak in Korean with Koreans, I then embody 100% of my Korean identity. It's not like when I'm speaking one language versus another, I'm a 50-50 sort of mix, um, if that makes sense. What what is really troubling, though, is that just because you're 100% that identity doesn't mean that you forget about the rest. So when you are speaking with uh, your friends, for example, when I speak with my friends from middle school in Korea, and we start talking about, say, politics or ideology or, or, or future prospects, what drives them, the, the perspectives become pretty divergent very quickly because for the past 12, 13 years, I've been living a very different kind of life. And, and I feel a bit foreign to them. Um, and that experience, of course, is mirrored uh, in when I speak to my American friends as well in a lot of cases, especially in high school when I was a freshman. I remember I was watching through these TV shows on 2X Speed just to get through them so I knew the content, so I could get references so that when someone said remember that episode in you know spongebob and i get to say that was uh episode something and i can i can sort of laugh along with it and you know someone i remember my freshman year told me gossip girl was for some reason the essential uh you know american identity kind of tv show that i had to watch so i finished the first two seasons of it and then i was trying to drop gossip, gossip girl quotes and you know you can imagine how that went so that's that's the struggle uh, of trying the, the real struggle um, that sort of 
hidden from view when people talk about um, being multicultural. But I, uh, you know, these sort of small jokes and episodes aside, I think it also goes to a much more fundamental question of then who, what it means for a group of, say, bicultural people to come together and to share their experience. Because in a lot of ways, it's it's hard to, it's hard, I mean, I think that our ultimate goals as, our ultimate goal as people on earth is in part, not the whole goal, but is in part to be understood. I think when an artist uh, paints a painting or if a musician uh, composes a piece of art or if a coder writes a line, you know, a beautiful program or if a leader uh, mobilizes a group of people, I think they're in the, co the common denominator for all of those activities is at its core a, a struggle to, to exhibit a, a belief of an identity and, and the expectation or at least the hope that other people uh, would understand that, 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 it, that it resonates with others. And in that sense, being or embodying multiple cultures is a very, very uh, difficult position to be in, in order to feel like you are being understood or that what you are saying truly resonates with not only one group, but all the groups of people that you hope to be connected with. So there, that's a struggle that I think a lot of people, including my friends and myself, sort of undergo. There is no one or, you know, few answers to this question, but I think it is, it is our journey of trying to answer that, that really makes, uh, again, going back to the slightly cliche notion of it's, it's really the, the journey that, that matters. And as much as the human struggle at its core is about uh, finding meaning, or at least discovering what it means to, to, to find that meaning, um, that the journey is really what um, brings a lot of these uh, groups of people together. And I think it's been at the core, the conversation, the communication and the transparency with which groups of people like myself have been able to engage in, that was what really um, has helped me throughout my life in that journey. And as you're saying that, you know, the, the reality of, you know, the compounding factors uh, and, and all of the baggage, all of the lived experience, um, all of the tensions that everybody brings into these spaces um, is also, I guess, running parallel, but in, intersects directly, right, with language, because that is the weight that comes in with language. Like, if you're able to connect, even if you've never met somebody before, um, if you're able to connect with them over language, or if there's a few words, like, the, the, just like this, the senses, right? If, you, if, if, if you've never met someone, but they're wearing a scent or a smell that reminds you of something in your childhood, you're going to go back there automatically. Um, you know, if you've never met somebody, you know, before, but some, they're vulnerable about something that, that touches a couple notes, all of a sudden you're more willing to open up to them and, 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 and it, you know, you, you dive right in, you know, so as you're speaking about that, it, it is kind of the, you know, I guess everyone's individual challenge, but also the opportunity to um, continue to explore yourself, um, but then also the challenge, you know, I guess the consistent challenge of like having to zoom out. Right, and, and I, I fully agree with you. The, the element of language, you know, is just like travel. The more you travel, like you, you can't, like you're no longer in a, in a small box. So you're, you're just like, you know, at Exeter, 
you're in a situation where even if you don't agree with what's going on, <laughs> you have to listen to people from all, from all over the world. Um, for the most part, you know, share their beliefs and values and ideals or like why, just why they think that um, through body language, through words. Uh, and then even if you don't agree, you have to kind of process, you have to reflect and, and still have to absorb it. And, and as you're saying with language, that's something that we as a people in, in I think all of the contexts have to commit to mobilizing, you know, around travel and language, but doing it in ways that maybe reduce the barriers to access. Not everybody's going to learn four languages or seven languages. Um, you know, and even if you travel and use the app, you'll only be able to get so much because you're, you're just word for word. That's not the, you're not, you're not getting the cultural or the traditional kind of, Oh, well, this is how they say it. <laughs> and, and this hey, but that's the beauty. That's the beauty. I mean, I, I think this ties well with, uh, what you mentioned about Exeter, because as you recall, the Exeter motto, or I, I guess the motto is the right word is non-sibi, right? It's not for oneself. And if you think about it, I, I always thought it was weird that a school's motto could be something about what not to do, right? It's, it's usually done in the, you know, I remember there was a, what is it, a Deerfield's motto was something like, be worthy of your heritage. And I was like, I mean, that's, that's kind of pretentious, but at least it's like, yeah, like we're, we're something and, you know, you should be worthy of that. There, there's that kind of value system to it about what you should do. But when at first I heard, it's talking about something that I shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be about me. And I was like, maybe this is some, you know, philanthropic, you know, big picture that they want to instill in us so that we're we're making big donations later on down the line. (laughs) But the more I thought about it, it was actually, it, it to this day is probably the, the word, the phrase that I think about most, because what it did was when, for example, I was, I was okay at math. I'm Asian, so I'm okay with math. I, but at the same time, the, the expectation was that, oh, here's this kid who's, you know, from South Korea, so he should be good at math. And that was the expectation. That was what a lot of people thought I should do. And I wasn't bad, but it wasn't my forte either. But what I did realize was that when I met people um, like Le Marie, who I think was from Alabama, and she uh, you know, came into a multivariable calculus class in high school and then dominated the seven Asian boys in that class, that really, that really blew my mind at that moment, because that was the only frame of reference that I had until then. And what it really helped me understand was, wow, I never really thought that math was that interesting. But the way that she solved those problems was just so creative, and it it blew my mind. And I, I thought, maybe, maybe it's not about what I'm good at, and what I really, really have a comparative advantage in, but it's about what other people do, what other people show me that the possibilities of their passions, and I can learn from that. And just because I'm not a math guru or a language guru, just because I can't speak seven languages doesn't mean that I can be interested and fall in love with language. And it was that reflection, the, mul- the multifaceted reflections that I saw from my peers, from my friends, that helped me identify what it is that really constituted me, what I was interested in, what I loved, what I couldn't do. And so therein lied this idea of it's not people talk about finding yourself and really doing a lot of self-discovery. And yes, we should spend time meditating and having time to ourselves disconnected from everyone else. But at least 
my interpretation of the non sibi aspect and what it means to sort of be a part of this journey is sort of to say, okay, who are the friends around me? Who are the people who I really admire most? And what, um, what aspects that they embody do I really want to reflect? And can I have all those mirrors where this person represents my aspirations for you know, something and this person represents my inherent uh, ability to do something else. This person sees the best in me and I know what that is. And when you have a collection of those, sort of like a, a mosaic, it sort of starts to come into focus what it really is that you're looking for. And I think that's the beauty uh, and part of, of, of having a model that's less about you and you know what you can do for yourself. But once you start focusing on others and what you can do for them, it sort of naturally reflects back to you and uh, ironically sort of sheds more light on who you are and what you want to be, um, which is integral to that, that journey. And even putting a pin, putting a pin into that self aspect, um, you know, as we, we, you know, we're mapping out the journey because it is, uh, I mean, the journey of life, right, is one of discovery. Uh, it's one of, you know, as you said, it, it's, it's, all, it's not so much about what problem, whichever problem it is, it's, it's more about how you solve the problem, how you rise, you know, and, and, and how you move around to, uh, you know, maneuver. That also being the case, good sir, you know, as you, as you look back, you know, or even just where you are right now, hitting pause and to reflect, what is a recommendation that you would have, or what is a, you know, something that you would put a pin in for your younger self, uh, whether it's to celebrate um, or, or to recommend or, or whatever it is, what is one thing that you'd recommend uh, for a younger June? I think it would probably, I mean, I, I have to preface this by saying, I hate it when people say the, the usual, go and try everything. Don't be afraid to, to do anything because that's kind of, that's kind of irresponsible. I mean, I, I, there was a lot of stuff that I really wanted to do. And I guess if there were no repercussions to it, then I should have done all of them. But the, fact of the matter is there's a reason why I didn't do all of those because I couldn't just drop everything from school and go off into the wilderness and, you know, write, write some uh, text that I think was an epiphany and then come back and pretend like it didn't happen or pretend like it was just something that could really be integral. I mean, there, there's a time and place for a lot of these things. And that's why I'm always hesitant to, to, to give a sort of more dreamy, um, you know, what's, what's an advice that you would give yourself, uh, in the past. But, but that being said, I, I, I think that if there was one concrete advice that I would, I would try to give to myself, um, it's to, it's to be more, it's to be both more critical of adults and more hopeful and interested in your peers. Because I think that a lot of the perpetual cycle that we find ourselves in is in part the solution to, but also aggravates a lot of the existing issues. And when we look up to people who are older than us, who have more experience than us, we already have this attitude of, oh, because they're older, because you know, he or she's an adult, because they're a teacher, 
they must know what they're talking about. But you and I both know that if we look back to high school, there were some people in their early mid or even late 20s who came in and we were just like kind of taking their word for granted, of course. Like, you know, uh, Mr. So-and-so or, or, or Miss Who-and-Who, they, they, they went to college and they know what life is all about. News alert, we're that age and we kind of don't know still. <laughs> and, and that's where I hope that there is a little bit more critical thinking when it comes to taking the advice um, of, of people who we would normally assume have the answers, have the keys to all these questions. Um, that doesn't mean that we should be disrespectful to our parents or to our mentors or to the adults. But I think being a little bit more critical and asking the why and not taking be just because as an answer is really important. On the flip side, I think we are also too quick to sort of disregard and disengage the advice or the thoughts or the, the silliness of our peers. But it's really that silliness that's at the core of innovation, especially when we, when we talk about technology today. I mean, most of the, the technology that's really um, taking, taking a lot of our attention right now and, and, and building out these extended possibilities come from what we might call pipe dreams uh, only you know, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, it's also because of this movement of self-awareness about mental health, about uh, being upfront about uh, where we are and who we are, uh, where we stand and who we are, um, that kind of dialogue that really started with, I think, um, millennials and also uh, Gen Zers. I mean, there, it's a very youth and grassroots driven uh, effort here in, in a lot of cases. And I think if I could go back to myself, I would say, don't don't just say, oh, that's so silly. You're you're joking around just because uh, you know your friend or someone who is younger than you even is, is talking about it. Um, set set an hour. Set just do as if you would be talking to your mentor. Take it seriously. Of course, it's not going to be pitch perfect and fully fleshed out, but give it a little bit more. Uh, give it a little bit more of a chance. And I think that I would be really surprised by just how much exciting things that can come out of it. I think that's that's readily readily applicable, you know, to everybody in all situations where that is the reality. You know, we kind of grow up and we take a lot of things for granted because it's seemingly that's the way it is or that's the way it should be. Um, yeah. And 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 the earlier you begin to question those things, uh, the more momentum you have and the more grounded in self uh, you actually become because it's celebrating your value or understanding that you know, everybody has value. And, and that's one of the perspectives that I believe travel and language really, uh, really do give you because when you or studying history, you know, if you can see civilization oh, yes. in every continent, you know, the fact that there are all kinds of Kings in Africa and all kinds of different, um, not just the main languages, you know, in China or, or in Korea or across kind of Asia or, what is the Middle East, <laughs> you know, but understanding like the thousands of years of histories. And so, you know, that gives you a different sense, you know, when you step into these things, because like you said, you're, you understand culture, you understand different nuances, even if it's not, I can, I can speak to this language um, through and through, or I'm able to connect at the same level as this academic um, or somebody in industry, but yet there's shared understanding and shared meaning. And that comes from peers and that comes from mentors as well. And so kind of, you know, as we get ready to transition, I suppose, you know, in one of the, the following parts, but 
I would say, you know, this, where, you know, what is it, in 2020, you know, on the tail end of 2020, heading into 2021, um, where are you, where are you, June Yang, where are you uh, on your journey? Yeah, I mean, I think my journey, even answering that question is, is part of, is part of the, is part of the, is part of the homework that I have for myself, I think. Um, to be able to answer the question of where are you in that journey sort of uh, presupposes that I have a sense of relative, you know, movement. Where was I in the past? Uh, where do I want to be? And that's only then can you sort of say, okay, if that's where I was and if that's where I want to be, I must be right around here. Without that relative notion, it's sort of, you know, it's just sort of saying I'm here without any frame of reference. So I think to be thinking about that frame of reference is step zero, if you will. And in that sense, I think I'm just perpetually, that, that, is the, that is the main question for me is finding ways to stay grounded. Um, because I know that it, by my own, I, I just have a tendency to be very um, optimistic, hopeful about the future. I have this notion of it's it's about the direction, especially um, you know in our twenties and thirties, it's about the direction and not the speed. Um, so I, I I always try to think about okay, if I need to set a good direction, I need to first understand where I am, and that process of contextualizing my decisions and my aspirations is is um, is really hard, especially because technology moves so quickly and it's uh we're thinking about what's happening what are we thinking about where are we going next and i think the tendency is for a lot of people if you look at the stock market this is one example not the only one but you can see that in olden days it used to be more fundamental value or intrinsic value driven people would research okay like what is the book value of this company what kind of accounting insights can it tell us but now a lot of people when they're picking stocks they just sort of say, oh, a lot of people are doing this, so that must be good. There's a, there's a lot of group learning or herd mentality that's going on. And that's one way to react to a situation. But I certainly think that for me personally, uh, when you ask the question, where am I in that journey? I think my answer is, I'm just trying to figure out uh, without other people's insights per se, how do I construct my own frame of reference and that's an that's a never ending journey, but I think I'm getting better and better at considering what variables I should be thinking about. And in, in that sense, I think my my outlook now is to to sort of to spread that as well. I think I as a young individual have, as I said earlier, a responsibility to to make sure that other people as well who are sort of um, whether it's um, thinking about their identity or, uh, you know, there's all this, uh, questions, especially from young, from young people, uh, all the, all the way to older folks about identity, um, in terms of imposter syndromes or, uh, performance issues. And those kinds of things are very stressful indeed, but I think I want to play a bigger role in, in sort of as, as, as much as I want to be discovering where I am in that journey, I want to also help other people to, to make sure that they're they're willing to sort of disengage sometimes, think about it, and then come back and then talk to other people about where they find themselves. 
and you already, you know, touched on the, you know, in terms of what's next, right? Continuing to to build on that element. So I would say kind of the the final transition, and it's picking up kind of on that notion, but you know, zooming out on your whole story, um, this journey as it as it has been thus far, um, you know, and then you know, I would say flipping the mirror, right? As you as you referred to before. Um, what message or um, what reflection would you like to give others? You know, what do you hope others would take from your story? Um, <laughs> I would say take it with a grain of salt. And <laughs> but I would I would probably I'd probably say, I mean, what I said earlier about the what I would say to my 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 past self. I mean, I think there there's a lot of communal anxiety that's building uh, because of the rising uncertainty. I think there's too many variables at, at play. Um, tech seems to be, I mean, you, you can just think about it in terms of the academic field being a reflection of the rest of the world. I mean, you know, there used to be a time when a, a journal or an article or a paper that was written in, you know, 1980s and 70s to be still super relevant. And you look at computer science and machine learning or AI related papers that are out now in 2018 is like an old paper and you're thinking, oh my God, like how quickly is thing, are things really shifting? Um, but as much as there's a huge movement of people around these things, uh, I, I dare say that a lot of it is very distracting. And, and um, you know, you, you say, what is the magic? And I think a lot of people expect there to be some magic, but um, I, I do believe that a lot of that magic is actually misdirection. Um, and part of the part of the message that I want to send to people is how do you then discern between magic and misdirection is if, and, and the way to do that is by sort of thinking about where is it coming from is if it's exclusively coming from outside sources and you don't believe in it, if it doesn't resonate with you, if you haven't done the research yourself, it's more likely than not that it's misdirection. If you've, if the idea came from you um, and no one else, if the idea came from other people or other sources, but you also find a fundamental part of you that resonates with that, and that could be as rigorous a process as, you know, spending a week doing the research to make sure that that is correct, or um, something as simple as having a, a group of friends and discussing it and, and thinking about how the different perspective bounce off from that idea and then accepting it as your own. I mean, that kind of critical thinking and engagement, I think will really help us understand what out there. And this goes back to this idea of fake news and, and, and how quickly things are changing. But I think it's that process um, that will help us find a bit of solace in a otherwise extremely ungrounding and ever changing world. So that would be my recommendation to people to, to sort of engage in that. It's time consuming. Sometimes it's not fun. Um, but I, I assure you that the, that, that the sense of calm and groundedness that, that we can come out of it with is so, so worth it. My name is Jun Yang, and this is my voice. Yeah.